It's Thursday, March 2nd, and if there's one thing the TSA was built for, it's to keep a bomb from getting on a plane. We start here. Officials say they intercepted a piece of luggage with explosives inside. An alarm went off and alerted all those TSA officials. There's something suspicious inside this suitcase. Our team is on the scene with details. The mysterious attacks on U.S. citizens might not have been attacks after all. And they say most cases are probably pre-existing conditions. Years after the first cases of Havana syndrome, victims are being told it's not the work of, well, anyone. And out of several embryos, they wanted the one that wasn't doomed to a life-threatening medical condition. That's not the one that was implanted, though. I cry all the time. It's devastating. What happens when you tell a fertility clinic that it shouldn't run in the family? From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. A couple weeks ago, you might remember that the Federal Aviation Administration admitted there's been safety problems in recent months. We know there is work to do, and we have a number of recent incidents that highlights the importance of continuing to make safety the top priority. Particularly on airport runways, with several planes narrowly averting crashes with landing and departing aircraft. The plane was like to the side. We were definitely having to take some sharp turns, so it was definitely really scary. In fact, just this week in Boston, a jet took off without clearance, forcing a jet blue flight to suddenly avert its landing. Well, yesterday, we learned that another type of catastrophe might have been averted without passengers even knowing it. Law enforcement now says that a bag about to be loaded onto a flight had explosives inside. ABC's Trevor Alt is there in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Trevor, this is a flight heading to Florida, right? That's right. So this was on its way to Orlando Sanford uh, Airport in in Florida there. A man, Mark Muffley, had a ticket on that flight showed up at the airport, checked a bag, and then was going about his business. And then it was as TSA was screening all those bags, as we've all seen them do, that an alarm went off and alerted all those TSA officials. There's something suspicious inside this suitcase. And according to the FBI, when they opened up that bag, they found what the FBI believes was an explosive device. They described it in the charging documents as something circular. It's about three inches in diameter. They say it was wrapped up in like a wax paper and some clear plastic around it too. But this explosive wasn't just sitting, you know, in the middle of all of his clothes. They said it was hidden in the lining of the baggage. So the TSA found it. They called the FBI in then. And the FBI says when they ran it through an x-ray, this thing had some kind of powder inside it that was similar to that of a commercial-grade firework in it, too. And it wasn't just the fact that it had this explosive in it, too, Brad. They said that alongside it, in the suitcase, there was a can of butane. There was a lighter. There were some other things with residue in it, too, and some, for whatever reason— two electrical outlets that were taped together with black tape. It's all kind of an odd little contraption of everything that was put together in there. But what the FBI says is that they really believe this posed a significant risk to the aircraft and to passengers. Yeah. How much danger were people actually in, according to police? Like, was this like a coordinated plot or something something else? Well, I mean, that's the big question now. We're still waiting for today. Mark Muffley is going to make his first court appearance. And the charging documents, number one, they didn't say anything as to what his motive might have been for a 
allegedly trying to sneak this explosive device onto the plane, but also the charges themselves are specifically for having that explosive at the airport, trying to get it through security. There's no charges, at least so far, as to some sort of greater plot or terrorism or motive in that regard. Like, in the charging documents, it doesn't say, like, we could tell he was trying to blow up this plane with a detonator. Like, it doesn't say that. Absolutely not. What they say is that once they discovered this device inside it, they actually announced, hey, Mark Muffley on the PA system, please come to the security checkpoint. And instead, they have him on surveillance video within a couple minutes leaving the airport. So that would seem to indicate that something was up there that he was potentially aware of. It's not there necessarily in the charging documents. They say that he did it. But as to what his goal was, we still have absolutely no idea. I'll tell you this, Brad. When they found this device, according to the airport... They shut down the western portion of their terminal while they were getting it all sorted out. They had the west, they had part of it closed for a few hours, but they kept the flights going. A couple days later now, I'm here in Allentown. I did our report for the evening news, and then I went to the rental car counter to get a car, and the worker had no idea why the news was there. Hmm. She worked at the airport where there was an explosive in a suitcase, and I had to tell her... (laughs) Two days ago, that happened. She had no idea. So Wait, that's how under the radar this all seemed to go from the TSA's perspective. A hundred percent. So it was business as usual, and that's what we've heard from the airport employees, too. They say this is exactly how we want security to work. This thing was to the letter how we want it to be handled. But, of course, you get an explosive at an airport, in a suitcase, or anywhere else. That is definitely cause for concern. Yeah, you, you, you line up at the airport sometimes being like, what could they possibly be looking for here? Like, this is so inconvenient. And yet, when when it came to it, they, they did spot this, apparently. All right, Trevor Alt, they are in Allentown, PA. Thank you. Thank you, Brett. There's nothing more galling than being told that the cause of your sickness might not be what you think it is. Long COVID patients have had to deal with this. Some doctors are warning residents in Ohio that it's common for people to experience psychosomatic symptoms after something like a train wreck involving chemicals. For the person feeling these symptoms, that can be crazy making. You think to yourself, I know what's wrong, but no one's believing me. Well, for several years, people working with the State Department have insisted that they've been suffering from a mysterious condition that's come to be known as Havana Syndrome. But yesterday, in perhaps their most emphatic statements yet, U.S. intelligence officials suggested that what these patients think must have happened just might not be true. Let's bring in a couple people who have been pursuing this story really for years. ABC's Connor Finnegan, who was on the State Department beat as Havana Syndrome became a thing, and Cindy Smith, our supervising producer for Global Affairs. Connor, can we start with you? Can can you just back me up and explain what Havana Syndrome is and why it's been investigated so thoroughly? Yeah, Brad, you know, you and I have talked about this for years now, and this new intelligence assessment even raises the question of whether there is such a thing as Havana Syndrome. There have been reported incidents on almost every continent in about a dozen different countries, but it started back in 2017 in Cuba. I know that they have been going through the process of bringing the majority of those people back to have thorough testing. Several uh, diplomats and, and spies, frankly, first started to report strange experiences in the fall of 2017. They were hearing this sort of piercing noise that felt binary, like if you you could step in and out of it. And, and with that, there were dozens of different symptoms. They've experienced serious physical consequences, including persistent headaches and hearing loss. 
they've also experienced psychological harm. And, and several from this group, this first initial cohort, were then studied. They had their brains scanned as part of an effort to, to understand what was going on. And what we saw were traumatic brain injuries. Intelligence officials, State Department officials all previously said that they believed these symptoms were genuine and compelling, but there was this unknown mystery of what was causing all of this. Well, and, and so then the theory ended up kind of beat like, just to the layman, it kind of sounded like oh, maybe like there's a guy outside with like a weird 21st century ray gun or something. Like, no one could figure out what was causing the things. Cindy Smith, you were at a briefing yesterday, finally, where intelligence officials were telling you what like that. That's not what happened. Exactly. So what they what they briefed us on was this sort of years long summarizing report that they said they found it very unlikely that a foreign adversary was responsible for these mysterious health incidents that have plagued these diplomats and intel officials around the world. In fact, they investigated over 1,500 reported cases, including incidents right here in Washington, D.C. They added there's no credible evidence that a foreign adversary has a weapon or a device um, that is causing these illnesses. Um, and they said there's, there's no one explanation that can be attributed um, and they say most cases are probably pre-existing conditions, conventional illnesses, and even environmental factors. Wait, so are they, and just so I'm clear though, are they, because as Connor said, like we have seen images of these people's brains, they don't look like they're at 100%. Are they saying these people are just crazy or that it just wasn't this thing that you thought it was? No, they're they're not saying they're crazy. That they they believe all these symptoms are very valid. What they did was an incredible um, thorough investigation, and, and and literally they said they left no stone unturned, um, chasing down some of the leads that people gave them for nine months. They even had a case where one guy said some suspicious black car came up to him. So they're like, okay, let's mm. track down that black car. Who was that guy? They found that guy. They tracked that guy and tried to find out if that guy had any, you know, connections to a foreign adversary. He didn't. Right now, they can't find any credible evidence to point to any one explanation. Well, and so then, Connor, like, if that's not what it was, if it's not somebody pointing a device at Americans' heads, if it's not a room that's been, like, rigged by spies somehow, if it's not any of these things that we thought it might be, how does that affect our relationship with all these other countries that we've been dealing with for the last few years? Like, I got to imagine that if the U.S. thought Russia or Cuba or whoever was, like, targeting some of our employees and some of our civilian employees, that that colors everything about how these spy agencies deal with each other. No, Brad, I mean, that's really the biggest question to me. That is the most sort of stunning implication of all of this. U.S. policy for many years now has in part, in small part, been built around this very idea that there were active attacks on U.S. diplomats, spies, potentially, you know, military officers and, and law enforcement officials overseas. And, and as Cindy said, including in Washington, D.C., it's part of the reason that the U.S. took a harder line with Russia in recent years. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said that he had raised it with his Russian counterpart in meetings. The president was going to raise it as well in his one-on-one -on -one with, with Vladimir Putin. It, it even once delayed Vice President Harris's trip to Vietnam because there were reports of an incident before her arrival. And then, of course, there's also the U.S. relationship with Cuba. Mm. Go back to 2017. And once the, once the Trump administration first learned about these first cases and they became public, they all but closed the U.S. embassy in Havana. They left a skeleton staff. Oh, right. Like this was the premise for this was like the premise for ending our relationship again, kind of. 
Yeah, that's right. They, they pulled back a lot of their staff, all but forcing them to cut cooperation, to cut outreach to Cuban authorities. And then, of course, there's been implications from that. You know, there have been fewer U.S. visas issued to Cubans, which has in part led to more Cubans taking to the seas or, or, or taking to the southern border to try to cross into the U.S. All of this has had dramatic effects on U.S. relationships around the world. What is the, What do you tell the families, though? What do you tell these patients? These Do you even call them victims at this point about what they've been experiencing and why? A lot of folks, Brad, are frankly hurt by this. You know, they feel undercut once again. You go back again to the beginning, and nobody believed so many of these U.S. diplomats initially. They were they were told that they weren't having symptoms. There was this idea that there was just mass hysteria in the embassy and in other embassies where there was, a, you know, a, a difficult environment for them. There was even an internal probe that we obtained a few years ago that found that the initial response from the U.S. government, from the State Department, was dismissive of its own employees. And so one group of over two dozen victims issued a statement yesterday through their lawyer, and they complained about this. They said that there has been a lack of transparency from the intelligence community. They said that without them providing more information, these conclusions are substantively worthless. And, and they said that it's also been damaging to to the victim's morale. The intelligence community says that they will continue to look for answers to try to solve what is behind it. If it's not a foreign adversary, if it's not some kind of special weapon, then what is it that is causing these 1,500 reported incidents? The number of incidents in recent years has been lower and lower. According to the State Department, it has declined fairly precipitously. But one diplomat I spoke to, based at an embassy where there have been dozens of incidents, told me that they have not gotten any notification from leadership yesterday saying that they've been given you know, any kind of all clear. And I think that's really telling. American diplomats, American spies, officials around the world, they're all still on alert. It's just so concerning because if you think there's tech out there that can like permanently damage Americans in sensitive situations, you don't want that to exist. But you also don't want to go on for years being like, there might be something we don't know. Uh, Connor Finnegan, Cindy Smith, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Brad. Next up on Start Here, a fertility clinic is supposed to get you pregnant, but not with the baby you begged not to have. We're back in a bit. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever wondered what you would do with an extra hour in your day? I think about this all the time. I'm like, I would be so productive. I'd exercise more, or I'd read a book, or I'd take a nap, like restore myself. We often find ourselves yearning for these extra hours, but the real question is, what would you do if you were making yourself a priority? Well, how about therapy? It can help you discover what's important so you can make the most of your time. If you've ever benefited from therapy, you know how transformative it can be. It's not just for those who have experienced major trauma. Therapy empowers you to learn positive coping skills, set boundaries, and become the best version of yourself. If you're considering starting therapy, you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and tailored to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire. You'll be matched with a licensed therapist. And here's the beauty of it. You can switch therapists if you're not finding the right fit. No additional charge. Take the first step. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash start here today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash start here. With daylight saving time upon us, we're looking forward to more daylight and longer days from March through November. And while setting our clocks forward gives us the illusion of more time, it doesn't necessarily help businesses find qualified candidates any sooner. Fear not, there is a solution. 
ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter is your 24-7 hiring partner working tirelessly to connect you with the right candidate. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, it gets distributed to over 100 job sites, ensuring you reach a diverse pool of qualified individuals. Their smart technology scans thousands of resumes, matching you with people whose skills perfectly align with your job requirements. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free, ZipRecruiter.com slash start here. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash start here. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Good morning, and thank you for listening to our story. Yesterday in Los Angeles, two parents stepped forward in a press conference describing a journey that so many prospective parents have taken. They decided to have a child by in vitro fertilization, IVF. But they say something went terribly wrong. Never in a million years did I think this could happen. It turned out to be the biggest mistakes of our lives. And in a largely unregulated industry with such high stakes, they become the latest customers to sue a fertility company. ABC's Kana Whitworth has been reporting on this. Kana, like, I've heard of fertilized embryos being destroyed or even lost, but like these allegations are just at a whole nother level. Yeah, Brad, I mean, you're exactly right. We're dealing with a family that now is facing raising a child that they know has a potentially deadly cancer-carrying gene. It's a rare gene. It's a stomach cancer, and his father has it. And his father has had to have his entire stomach removed. And you were aware, and you were looking out for it, making sure it wasn't passed on. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, that was like my sole life purpose was to have a baby that I didn't pass this gene on to. So he, before seeking treatment for his cancer, started freezing his sperm. A fertility clinic was the answer, was the only way that they would ever be able to assure that they would have a healthy child. So you saw HRC as your one way to have a healthy mm-hmm. child. we were going to depend on them to deliver, you know, what they said they, they would deliver, which would be a child without my gene. They went to HRC Fertility in Pasadena, California. This is a company that touts themselves as as the best around. So what they do is they create an embryo with his sperm, with his wife's egg, and then they have it tested genetically. And what that does is it isolates any of these potentially deadly genes. And in Jason and Melissa's case, Melissa also carries the BRCA gene mutation for breast cancer. They use like the, yeah. the technology just to figure out which ones could possibly be cancer-free with no genes, which ones had his and which ones had mine. They had it a healthy embryo. It was implanted and it resulted in a miscarriage. So they go back to HRC. They have several embryos left and they say, we want to implant the embryo that's a male embryo that does not have the stomach cancer gene in it. Mm. But we will be okay with the BRCA gene. Since the male is less likely to suffer from breast cancer, they went that route. And so they decided to implant that. From what we understood, and we even referred to him as Braca Boy, which is the one that had my gene. They had a child. They thought it was a healthy child. And at 10 months, the child's 10 months old, Melissa thinks about having a second child. And she starts going through her paperwork. And at this point, she realizes very clearly in her paperwork that HRC implanted an embryo that in fact carried 
this deadly stomach cancer gene. I had to call the corporate office. I was transferred to a manager in the corporate office whose secretary answered. She heard me out. She was crying on the phone. I was telling her my story about what was going on. When Jason and Melissa confronted HRC about this, HRC, according to them, then doctored her medical records. I, as their attorney, wanted to see their paperwork. Um, And HRC Fertility sent what they purported to be Melissa's patient records. And essentially redacted parts of it and sent it back to her to make it look like they had made no mistake at all. Wait, so they go through all this work. They go through all the fertility stuff, all the like concern, and in some cases the trauma that it takes to do the whole IVF thing. And then their kid has the risk of developing the exact condition they were hoping to avoid. They said it's like living in the twilight zone, Brad. I cry all the time. It's devastating. You should only know love and happiness. And the fact that he's going to have to go through the life changes as he gets older, so unfair. I mean, everything that they tried to do to avoid this... All the effort they put in, the time, the money, the emotional support. In fact, Jason told me that he was seeking treatment. He was going through his treatment for his stomach cancer, was like had his port still in his chest and was carrying a backpack with chemo. And he went to the doctor and he said he looked him in the eye and he said, I don't ever want to pass this on. We had talked about adoption, but the fact that this technology was out there and it was, you know, guaranteed by HRC that we wouldn't have to worry about the gene being passed on. I mean, we, like I said, we decided to pull all of our trust and faith into them. When they went and looked through their paperwork, they didn't have a single embryo available to them at this point that did not have this stomach cancer gene. So what they should have done was tried again. And that's something that they would have done. They would have gladly mm. gone through egg retrieval, gone through everything again. And just so I'm clear, Kena, on the genetic stuff, are, we're, we're not talking about like genetic engineering, right? This isn't like a like they're not saying like build us a baby that doesn't have this. How does that work? Yeah, Brad. I mean, you're exactly right. What they're doing is they're creating embryos from his sperm and her eggs, and then they're just getting them genetically tested to find out which embryos are the healthy ones. Oh, like if you were saying, you know, brown eyes are more common than blue eyes. We take a look at all these embryos. Oh, most of them are brown eyed. Some of them are blue eyed. We can pick some of those. And if, if we're talking about like those are the healthy embryos, you just like select those out of the batch and implant those ones. Yeah, I mean, Brad, all they were looking for at this point was embryos that just did not have this stomach cancer gene in it. So when do we start training him to not eat and drink at the same time? When do we start limiting the sugar. him having sugar? You know, how do you tell a kid at seven years old to only have a half a slice of cake and not the whole cake? Because as he gets older, when he has his stomach removed, he's not going to be able to finish that whole slice. And the reality of it is, Brad, is that their child will have to face life-altering surgery. What? In all likelihood, this child will have to have his entire stomach removed around age 15. Yeah, and that's according to the family who's apparently consulted doctors on this. But more broadly, there have been concerns about fertility agencies because they've been booming in recent years. There's not a ton of regulation around these companies. But for this company itself, Kana, what has been the response? Yeah, Brad, so we reached out to HRC, and they told us in part that the patients associated with this case sought genetic testing and genetic counseling outside of HRC fertility. And with an outside party, they wish to have a male embryo transferred, which we carried out 
according to the family's explicit wishes. And that's that's a direct quote um, from this statement from HRC to us. And so, Brad, I asked the family's lawyer about that. And then he went on to say the way it works is that when they're interested in this fertility treatment, they go to HRC. HRC helps them create the embryos. And then they say, go to this certain company, Cooper Embryonics, have these embryos tested. Once we know the test results, then we'll make the implantation decisions. So I always think about when I was going through treatment or even when I'm in the hospital doing follow-ups. And there's always some type of, can you please state your name and date of birth? And why are you here? Well, why don't we do anything similar with the patient that's going to HRC, especially when we're transferring an embryo? The family is seeking more oversight in this industry. They don't ever want something like this to happen to another family. And Brad, all of this was sort of uncovered for the Diaz family because they really want to have a second baby. They really want to try and find a healthy embryo so that they can have another child. And had they maybe not gone down that road to have another child, they likely wouldn't have known that their baby has this gene and they wouldn't be able to do any preventative care that now they're considering. And the company adds that it is standing by the professionalism and expertise of its team and that it carried these orders out according, quote, to the family's explicit wishes and in accordance with the highest level of care. Kana Whitworth, really interesting. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Brad. All right, one more quick break. When we come back, it's about blooming time. One last thing is next. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. And one last thing. Everyone measures weird weather in their own way. Like in New York, we just got our first snow in almost a year. It's been abnormally dry. California has been abnormally wet recently. They're getting record amounts of snow. But in Washington, D.C., residents measure the coming of spring in their own way. I flipped out. I already saw like four cherry blossom trees blooming. This was February. That's our producer Jen Newman describing what is apparently a major talking point in our nation's capital. The cherry trees are blooming early. The blossoming of the Japanese cherry trees is... It's probably the biggest springtime event in the nation's capital. That's Mike Lederst with the U.S. National Park Service. He's the chief spokesperson for the National Mall, which is ringed by these famous cherry trees that were gifted to us once by the Japanese. Peak bloom is defined as when 70% of the Yoshino variety of, of cherry trees uh, are in blossom. And the Yoshinos make up about 70% of the 3,700 trees on, uh, on the National Mall. Well, yesterday, the National Park Service officially predicted that peak bloom is coming between March 22nd and the 25th. That is earlier than usual. And that date seems to keep creeping up in recent years from April into March. We know that heat and warmth is what drives flowering fruit trees to to bloom. So it stands perfectly to reason that as we see warming temperatures, we're going to see those peak bloom dates come earlier. Is that a problem, like for the trees? It is not a problem for the trees 
per se, but the trees don't live in a bubble. They, you know, it's all part of the web of life. Remember, these are flowering trees. Bees are supposed to pollinate them. Mike says, imagine if schedules between bees and other plants gets off kilter. That wouldn't be good for anyone. That's the long-term issue. In the short term, the National Park Service could also get caught off guard by hordes of tourists that show up just to see these cherry blossoms. It's a lot tougher than preparing them all for Independence Day. I'm fairly certain from year to year that's always going to be on July 4th, and we can uh, plan accordingly. We didn't know really until yesterday afternoon when we thought peak bloom was going to occur. So, you know, there are contracts to be written and let for the extra portageons, for the staging, for the fencing that goes up. And so it is a mad scramble, especially if it's going to be an early peak bloom. You know, all of a sudden we've got three weeks to get all that in place. In the meantime, Mike is getting ready for other challenges of the Cherry Blossom Festival. Do you, National Park Service spokesperson, do you have allergies? I do. And, um, you know, fortunately, it's not as much the cherry trees, but um, pine uh, especially is a problem. And the rest of us should perhaps get ready for these seasonal occurrences to spill over into different seasons. You know something interesting? Our producer Jen was pointing out that cherry blossoms seemed more white than pink last year. Mike says apparently this is like a widespread myth in Washington that these trees are pink to begin with. Like Lots of cherry trees are pink, he says. These Japanese ones, though, that you remember, they are more white. They got this hint of pink, but over time, everyone remembers them pink in their mind's eye. Also, a development you probably heard about right as we posted this yesterday. Drug maker Eli Lilly capped the price of insulin at $35 after new rules in the Inflation Reduction Act that affected mainly Medicare patients. But this is huge news to anyone with diabetes. We got more on abcnews.com and the ABC News app. I'm Brad Milkey. See you tomorrow. 